Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Since Jonathan Letterman became medical director of the Army of the Potomac in July of 1862, our military has been making efforts to properly care for soldiers and sailors. Battlefield care requires skills and procedures which differ from civilian care. On this episode of Sound Practice, we will discuss how our military trains physicians and promotes leadership skills for the benefit of our servicemen and women. My guest is a national expert on leadership. All Americans should feel proud about what you will hear next on Sound Practice. My guest today is Dr. Neil Grunberg. Dr. Grunberg is Professor of Military and Emergency Medicine, Medical and Clinical Psychology, and Neuroscience at the Uniformed Services University School of Medicine. Neil Grunberg, welcome to Sound Practice. Hi, Mike. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. First question, Dr. Grunberg, what is the Uniformed Services University? Well, thanks, Mike. Uniformed Services University, or USU, is the United States Federal Health Sciences University. It includes the School of Medicine, the Graduate School of Nursing, Postgraduate Dental College, and now, more recently, Allied Health Science Programs. We also train physicians, nurses, psychologists, dentists to serve in the Army, Navy, Air Force, as well as the public health service. And we conduct research scholarship relevant to the health of the nation, national security, and global health. Brilliant. Well, certainly, certainly important work. As you know, this is the podcast of the American Association for Physician Leadership. And much of your teaching and research efforts have focused upon leadership. How'd you become interested in the topic of leadership? Well, thanks so much for that question. I'm actually trained as a medical psychologist and neuroscientist, but my own graduate training going back several decades included physiological psychology, social psychology, and pharmacology. I mentioned that because for decades, my work was on drug abuse, traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress disorder. But over the last roughly 10 years, particularly again as USIS and the United States was involved in conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. And as we as a nation were dealing with the challenges of communication and effective team building in healthcare and dealing with patients from point of injury to medevac to then bring into the US, I was approached by the then president of the university, then Charles Rice, a trauma surgeon himself and asked if I could focus more on leadership, training for healthcare professionals, team building communication. Because although my own research had focused in psychobiosocial aspects of behavioral medicine, behavioral health, I also have a long experience in leadership training based on my own background. But what I did was in response to the request from the university's president, I put together a team and over the last eight years, focused my work then on leadership. 
first looking at the extant literature, both from the military's history of leadership, but also from academic as well as healthcare. Putting that together, it ended up of all the things I've done in my career, it's been the most challenging and dare I say, most rewarding aspect of what I've done. My team and I over the last six years have published more than 50 papers and a book, writing a second book. And this is now my fifth podcast on the topic in just the last two years. So it's been a, a very important journey and, and well-received and an important way to complement what we consider 21st century medicine, which, if you will, is a team sport. Absolutely. I'm interested, is leadership in military healthcare systems different from leadership in civilian healthcare systems? That's a terrific question. I wouldn't make that harsh a distinction between civilian and military, but what is relevant is the leadership as performed effectively by physicians, depending on specialty situation context, does differ. So I'm sure that your listeners and the physicians and other healthcare professionals who listen to this podcast will think about the following example. What is it like to lead in the OR versus the emergency room versus doing complex differential diagnosis on a sophisticated case that's comorbid with various decisions? In those cases, of course, depending on resources, time, urgency, and the like, that can differ. With that in mind, operational medicine or military medicine certainly has a particular focus where resources, context, situation, time can be of particular importance. So therefore, the type of exchange of communication, effectiveness, understanding of the team is much more similar to the emergency medicine physician, physician, the OR, physician in the field. Now, when we're doing public health work in uniform services, so as we all experienced during the challenges of COVID and the pandemic, then we're moving to community health issues. So I would say there is a large Venn diagram overlap between civilian and military medicine. But when one thinks about the particular challenges of military medicine, it best informs emergency medicine and various other time urgent or limit or resource restricted situations. It strikes me that one of the differences in military versus civilian healthcare is the professional liability medical malpractice system that medicine is subjected to. How, if at all, does the threat of litigation impact the practice of medicine? Well, Mike, as, as you shared with me before we began the podcast, you as an attorney with those specialties, particularly knowledgeable and focused on it, a very important question. Well, again, as the, as the listeners may know, particularly those who either are in or have served in the military, either as active duty or reservists, the different, there are quite different legal issues based on, of course, when an individual, men and women and others become enlisted or officers within the military health system, they also are accepting that the care provided is the best care and the, li the legal liabilities are different from in a individual private practice. That's quite different. But I need to add to that, 
a very important point. Military medicine, in the broadest sense, focuses on readiness. And readiness is physical and mental health, readiness to perform in order to perform duties to secure the safety, health of all the personnel relevant to the security of the nation. But that also includes the importance of the physical and mental health of the support of personnel, of all active duty professionals, including their families. So there's a a, a broader community of, of concern, but the liability, the, the legal medical liability issues are somewhat different. Interesting. Dr. Grimberg, studies tell us that morbidity and mortality are influenced by a patient's healthcare team and not just their physician. Are members of the military trained to work as team members? It seems to me that greater emphasis might be placed upon teams than individuals in the military. Am, am I correct? You're spot on. That's a very insightful point. And perhaps, of again, of relevance to your question, there are a variety of conceptual frameworks, theories, approaches, philosophies of leadership that have been developed for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and that have become particularly influential over the last several decades. But to your point, the conceptual framework that we use and teach at USU or the Uniformed Services University is a framework that we call the leader-follower framework. And it has several component parts, but among them, relevant to your question, we also emphasize that developing excellent leaders means that the leaders need to understand followers and followership within themselves and the teams, your point. But another aspect of the leader-follower framework, particularly relevant to your question, is that we believe and teach and develop leaders who understand that there are four psychosocial levels of leadership and followership to develop. The personal, developing one's own abilities, knowledge, self-awareness. The interpersonal, that is dyadic, individual, healthcare provider with patient, with colleague, with subordinate, with supervisor. Then team level, much more complex, because as you say, healthcare teams are particularly important. And in the military, it's not just the healthcare team, it's the healthcare team embedded with the other operational teams and the command structure. And the fourth level is the organizational or systems programmatic level. So we teach the, there are four C elements, character, who you are, competence, what you do, context, when and where you do it, and communication, how you do it at these four psychosocial levels, personal, interpersonal, team, organizational. But you're absolutely right that military medicine team and organizational is profoundly important. But I also believe that this is also where modern 21st century medicine is. It's now teams. And the team includes not only the various specialists within medicine, physicians, but it includes nurses, dentists, psychologists, social workers, workers physical therapists, occupational therapists, and importantly, 
members of the modern healthcare team are the patients themselves, as well as their loved ones or significant others. Because as patients go in informed, carrying basically a computer in their pocket through their cell phone, they have much more access to information. So engaging that entire team, this creates both in military medicine, and we believe in civilian medicine broadly, an understanding of team dynamics, buy-in, mutual respect and understanding, and embracing and encouraging diverse perspectives, attitudes, and belief systems. Over the span of your career, how, if at all, have the students at the Uniformed Services University changed? Uh, terrific question. I've been at uh, UCIS, I've been proud to be at UCIS a very long time. I've been a professor since 1979, that is 79, coming up on 44 years soon. So I have dealt with baby boomers, Gen X, millennials, and Gen Z. So if I'll start with how they have not changed. They have not changed with regard to commitment to patients, as well as patriotism, support, concern for the welfare of other individuals, as well as a broad and deep perspective of how the United States has both the privilege and responsibility to contribute to well-being and healthcare, both nationally, internationally, and abroad. That's been impressively consistent. How have they changed? The most striking changes have been in two categories. One, increased diversity in every aspect of demographics. So when I first came to Uniform Services in the late 70s, and we were still within memories of the Vietnam War, the students we had were predominantly male, predominantly white, Caucasian, non-Latino, and predominantly middle America. What's changed with that, just in all medicine, one, we've gotten to be roughly 50-50% male and female, but we also have tremendous change, which is very exciting and very important, in terms of race, ethnicity, belief systems, and including gender identity, et cetera. Diverse perspectives have changed enormously, and our population of students more and more reflect the nation. The other way in which they've changed, shouldn't surprise anyone on this, is understanding and use of technology, but that's had two impacts. One has an impact on the learner themselves, and the other has had a really robust impact on how we teach. Give an example. When I was trained at Stanford University, and then I was trained at Columbia University, Separate from my training as a scholar, as a researcher, when I was trained to be an educator, I literally learned in the 70s to deliver a lecture, we use the verb, to read a lecture. Why did we say to read a lecture? Well, because you actually wrote your lecture out, senior faculty reviewed it for accuracy and information, and then you learned to read it like a evening newscaster, so it didn't sound as if you were reading. But why did we do it that way? because the students were taking notes and needed to understand, and we started in that way. We also learned, sounds funny now, how to use a blackboard. That is, 
how to plan a blackboard, how to use multiple colors, how to make the blackboard support your lecture. We moved from reading lectures to then we learned how to use overhead projectors, then we used slides, then we used PowerPoint, then we got more interactive, but everything changed dramatically. I'd say most noticeably 10 years ago, and then we rocketed into the 21st century during the pandemic. As we used various types of media of different sorts, but also as students now had access electronically rather than the textbooks, electronic access, we moved more and more to today's students rather than go through the history of this. Instead of giving long didactic read lectures, we use what's called flipped classroom information in advance. Students do a lot more on their own to prepare so that the sessions between faculty and students are much more interactive. We also use the law school or business school approach of case studies and case interactions, even during the pre-clerkship years, small working groups, student-led groups, and the other is simulations. For us in military, we do military field practica as well as simulations. Everything is much more interactive. The responsibility, if not the burden on the student, is much more preparation in advance rather than memorization of facts and, and information. It's access to facts, but problem solving, decision making, and relevant to our discussion about teams, how to work with a team, not only of other physicians, but increasingly in the last five years, interprofessional education, our medical students with our advanced practice nurses, with our psychologists, with our advanced practice dentists, very different approaches. So I'd say the techniques and the delivery system, as well as the diversity of, this, of the demographics and lived experiences of the, of the students themselves. Dr. Grumberg, PTSD and other combat stress injuries do not meet uh, the Purple Heart eligibility requirements that an injury must be the direct or indirect result of enemy action. As a professor of medical and clinical psychology, do you agree with our government's stance on this? Doesn't <laughs> such a stance continue the stigmatization of mental health issues? Well, well thank you. But, but Mike, with that question, as a lawyer, I should first state, and I'm glad that I'm being recorded, that the opinions I'm presenting today, including to answer the question I'm about to answer, are my question, are my opinions alone and are not the opinions of either the Uniformed Services University, the School of Medicine, the Department of Defense, or the federal government. So that, that disclaimer was worthy of a law degree. <laughs> Understood. This is this is your personal opinion. Thank Please. you. That just is very important. Sure. Based on my understanding over the last particularly decade or so, as I and many of my colleagues, both at USIS and other universities, US and around the world, have studied PTS or PTSD arguments or discussions about what, I believe that there should be a broadening of eligibility for recognition for serious behavioral and mental health conditions experienced as a result of warfare. It is a complex issue. 
Oftentimes, there's a comorbidity between various aspects of PTS, particularly with traumatic brain injury, minor or major. So therefore, we have cognitive functional as well as emotional psychological disruption. But I do believe that this, the eligibility for recognizing Purple Heart should be broadened to include various aspects of behavioral health. Again, my personal opinion. Understood. Thank you. Over your lifetime and in mine, warfare is, has changed. Missiles can be launched with incredible precision, hitting targets hundreds of miles away. Drone pilots can take out enemy positions from bases in the Midwest. Does this geographic separation of the battlefield have psychological implications on our soldiers and sailors? Um, again, my own opinion, but again, happy to answer. Yes, I believe it does, but I don't. I I, I don't think the the emphasis is about geographic separation as much as the distinction is a lack of, you know, again, seeing the whites of the enemy's eyes, you know, and that is when one is dealing with any kinds of conflict, whether it's conflict for attorneys in the, you know, in the courtroom, whether it's conflict within families, within business, et cetera, or certainly with conflict on the sports field, and certainly in the existential, the life or death issue of conflict in warfare. There is a difference when one engages one's opponent or enemy versus they become so distant that it's a computer game. In fact, many of the readers may, may think the way I'm thinking right now of the science fiction book series, Ender's Game, of which there was one film based on it. But the interesting argument put forward in a series of novels was what happens when one separates so far from the humanization or the personal interaction, does that change the nature both of how we act in warfare and how we respond? Also for people my age, and I'm almost 70, those of us who are Trekkies will remember that there were, it was actually a very interesting episode in the, uh, in the one and only original Star Trek you know, with William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, in which there was an entire episode, and the name of, the, of that particular episode escapes me now, in which we were dealing with two warring worlds in which everything was done completely by computer and there was actually no destruction, but depending on where the computer said a hit was, individuals in both worlds accepted that they voluntarily walked into chambers where they were destroyed. And it was basically one of Captain Kirk, William Shatner's greatest soliloquies was arguing that if one removes the horror of war in every way, then what will stop war at all? Interesting. Um, let's shift focus because I'm particularly interested in, in your university. What, what does the Uniform Services University School of Medicine do particularly well that should be implemented at civilian medical schools? Well, well thank you again for my opinion, but um, 
I think several things. To start with, that our school of medicine, again, one of our schools, some have argued it's our original or flagship or it's our largest school, where we have approximately 175 medical students a year. We're on the larger side. In addition to having, of course, appropriate accreditation and all the standards for the MD, we have several things that we emphasize. We proudly refer to ourselves, the university broadly and the School of Medicine, as the leadership academy of the military health system. Because we are training people to wear several hats, so I'll focus on the medical school for now, the physicians, officers in the uniformed services, as well as, of course, to develop themselves as individuals. The third hat, which overlaps, is to develop as a knowledgeable, effective, thoughtful, and adaptive leader who can adapt to what has been referred to as VUCA environments, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous situations. So one thing that we're particularly strong at, which uses is particularly proud of, and we put a lot of time and energy, is our leadership development program, which is integrated across the four years in which we focus on the students having self-awareness, both internal self-awareness, do I know my own values, my own philosophies, my own biases, my own weaknesses and strengths? Do I develop external self-awareness, how others react or respond to me? And then as we move through a development of various competencies, both role-specific and what we refer to as transcendent leadership competencies, emotional intelligence, conflict resolution, problem-solving, decision-making. But we emphasize particularly various contexts, physical, psychological, social, cultural, because we're preparing healthcare professionals to work not only within various cultures of the U.S., but throughout the world. So the leadership development of the person, and as we've discussed a short time ago, of the team is very strong. The other part, in addition, that we are particularly emphasize is emergency medicine and operational medicine, regardless of what specialty you're going into, so that every one of our physicians, whether they become neurologists, gynecologists, pediatricians, internists, surgeons, in addition, every single one is prepared to serve effectively wherever in the world they're assigned in an operational capacity. So there's a breadth. So in addition to requiring rotations in emergency medicine, we may be one, as I recall, we're one of the few med schools in the country that also requires during clerkship year, every student to do a clerkship rotation in anesthesiology. Many schools don't require that, but you can of course readily understand, I'm sure the listening audience will know, so they're ready for operational medicine. If a pediatrician, for example, is sent wherever in the world, and clearly we know where conflict is currently, they not only can treat children, they can treat adults. Whether a psychiatrist is sent wherever they may be sent, they can also do stopping bleed, doing emergency medicine, and as well as help to command and help with community health. So again, the leadership aspects, as well as being ready for emergency operational medicine, of course, that needs to be done in which the greatest enemy 
is time because it's so limited. Fascinating answer. Thank thank you. Our time's coming coming to an end uh, together, unfortunately. But I'm interested in your current research topics. What are you working on um, today, Dr. Renberg? Well, thank you for asking. With regard to leadership, we're particularly, or I and my colleagues are particularly interested in developing and understanding professional identity, but particularly understanding how important it is within each of us to understand followership. So to briefly explain this, for decades, theories of leadership said the leader was what was called great man theory, the work of Thomas Carlyle. Later, of course, gender neutral great person theory. But we've realized that leadership is about relationships. But because of our understanding the importance of getting the various perspectives, lived experiences, and buy-in from the team, leaders need to understand followership. But followership is not only performed by those who report to the leader. Within each of us, we should be prepared to share leadership. So to explain it, I give two concepts. I'm a musician. I'm a drummer. I'm a jazz drummer, which I started playing the drums when I was very young, became pretty serious. In many ways, I like to explain that a great healthcare team is like a jazz ensemble. Clearly, there's a designated leader, you know, in which it's named for. But a great jazz musician leader recognizes sometimes I lead and I'm featured and others support me. Sometimes we play in total ensemble but I also need to know when to back off. This is particularly true for me as a drummer. I know when to solo and play loud. I know when to play in the middle of my team, my ensemble, to, to control the beat and the rhythm, but to be blended. I know when to play soft, and I know when to not play at all. And I let another, whether it's the sax player, the pianist, the bass player, to be featured. So. One thing that I'm really trying to understand is getting people to embrace and value that type of way of approaching their leadership. The second part about followership is not just thinking of the members of my band or ensemble or team, healthcare team, as separate from me, but I've used this recently. I think of leadership and followership is best described as a yin-yang within each of us. And within the yin-yang images, Within the light is a dark seed or eye. Within the dark is a light seed or eye. But it's all of the chi or the life force of the totality is recognizing that there is a balance. So within each of us, I need to know when to send information and when to receive it, when to lead and when to follow, when to talk. And most importantly, leaders need to know when to listen. And how to listen is hidden in the word listen. If you take the letters L-I-S-T-E-N and rearrange them, they tell you how a leader should listen because they spell two words. I'll pause, see if your listeners can figure it out. One word is silent. The other word, and list. So with list, bring everyone in so they're in a psychologically safe way and are valued to come forward. And you know when to 
be silent to receive the information before making informed decisions. So my focus now is really trying to understand how to explain, how to encourage, and how to get people to value leaders, followers, both within themselves and within the team in which they work. Well, that's fabulous. Thank you very much for your time. My guest has been Dr. Neil Grunberg. Doctor, thank you. Thank you so much, Mike. I greatly appreciate this opportunity. My deep thanks to Dr. Neil Grunberg for his time and for his service to our country. His work on the topic of leadership has far-ranging applicability. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Please join me next time on Sound Practice. We release a new episode every other Wednesday. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Had his holy cow, that man and Robin went to Kapow.